0: Without your help, we are above our heads. And so we pray that you would help us, that you would minister to us in this time, and that quite simply you would show us yourself from your word. Show us ourselves as well. May we see ourselves rightly because we have seen you. And please show us our Savior, our only hope and our only righteousness. And we pray these things in his name and for His sake. Amen. Well, we are beginning a new sermon series today. This is a series through the book of Genesis, and it is a series through Genesis as Christians. Now, that might sound crazy that I need to say that, but we are going to be looking at this book in a distinctly Christian way. There is a way of reading the entire Old Testament that is distinctly Christian. And so that is certainly true of Genesis in the very beginning. There are ways that people approach the Old Testament that are frankly not helpful. number of ways that people do that. One of the ways that people approach the Old Testament that's just not very good is they approach the Old Testament kind of like it's a wasteland or a desert of some kind. There's just not a lot of refreshment to be found. There's not a lot of life, frankly. There's an occasional oasis, you know, as we make our way through the desert, but mostly the Old Testament is just law and threats and hard stuff. Sometimes when people approach the Old Testament, they, we, tend to moralize it as well. This is where we follow around the Old Testament saints and try to figure out ways to be like them. Not only is that unhelpful, sometimes it's just flat out harmful. Another way that people approach the Old Testament is with a very law-centered mentality. And this is where we go through every passage and we're mining through it and digging through it to find what we need to be doing or what we need to not be doing. And the problem with all of these various approaches to the Old Testament is that all of them are contrary to how Jesus himself understood the Scriptures. And they are contrary to how the apostles understood the Scriptures. And remember that for Jesus and the apostles, their Bible was the Old Testament. And for them, the entire Old Testament was a testimony about Christ. Now, Genesis, it's a heavy lift. It's intimidating for me as a preacher to think about preaching through this book. We trust the Lord gives grace, but nonetheless, it's a big thing to undertake. Genesis is historical. So hear me say that. Genesis is a historical book, and at the same time, it is not written like a history textbook. Moses is the author, and what Moses wrote is redemptive history. So today and next week, we're going to be looking at the account of creation from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. This text, the account of creation, is historical with respect to the origins of the world. And it's historical with respect to our origins as human beings. Adam and Eve are historical, made uniquely in God's image. And the creation account is not a documentary. It's not the purpose of the account. There are theological things alongside the historical that we need to see and we need to be aware of. So over these next two weeks, as we consider Genesis one And two, theologically, redemptively, the first place our minds should go is to the very end of the Bible. Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. Where we find the consummation of God's plan of redemption. There are tremendous parallels between the creation and the consummation of redemption. Tremendous parallels between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. I say all of this because I think that the tendency for many when they think about the early chapters of Genesis is to think of the Creation Museum or an ark in Kentucky. And let me be very clear. I'm going to say this in a minute. Extraordinary providence is going on in the creation of the world. Amen? God, out of His power, speaks all things into existence. It is flat out miraculous. And at the same time, this book is about redemption. Redemption that Jesus accomplished. And it is written that way from the very first word of it all the way to the end. This text that we're going to be looking at, the account of creation, is beautifully written. It's written in a very literary way. And to say it is literary does not mean it isn't historical. Those things are not at odds with each other. And it is written theologically, redemptively, to reveal things to us about God and about ourselves and about the world we inhabit. It's written in a way that reveals really significant things about Jesus and about redemption. And we will see that over and over again, not just in this creation account, but all through the book of Genesis. That's why we entitled the sermon series The Beginnings of Redemption. There are parallels between Genesis and other passages of Scripture that we should see. And I'm going to do the best that I can to point some of those out. And there are types of, and shadows of Jesus. There are pointers to Jesus all over the book of Genesis. And so we're going to consider Genesis that way. And to be very clear, when I say that we are going to see Christ in Genesis, I don't mean that we are going to approach the book of Genesis like it's a Where's Waldo book and Jesus is Waldo. That's silly. But what we're doing is every week as we look at a portion of the book of Genesis, we are asking the question, where does this passage stand in relation to Christ? Where does this passage stand in relation to the Redeemer? The one who's going to come and crush the serpent's head who's the point of the whole thing? That's the question that we're going to ask. Genesis also, just last comment by way of introduction. Genesis is foundational. Just in the early chapters, like in the first 11 chapters of this book, we read of the creation of the world We read of the fall of mankind into sin. We read of the triumph and progress of sin up until the time of the flood. And then we read of the Tower of Babel where peoples are scattered across the earth. In these early chapters alone, we will see foundational truths like our identity and our place in this world. We will see God's original intentions for us. We will see the power of sin and the wreckage that it brings. And we will see through it all God's proactivity to overcome sin and its effects. God's proactivity to overcome sin and its effects in order to bring about the redemption that He's planned, your salvation and mine. So open your Bibles to the beginning, to Genesis 1 and verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't sweat that. We will get the Words to the sermon text on the screen behind me, and you will be able to follow along that way. As you're turning uh, in your hard copies, or maybe as you're turning your Bible app on, consider these words. Genesis 1 is pretty epic. As one author writes, quote, Athletic events and musical performances generally begin with a warm-up. Athletes need to get their hearts beating and their muscles limber. Musicians need to loosen their fingers, lips, or vocal cords. But Scripture does not begin slowly. Genesis 1 is no warm-up, but begins with an astounding account of God's work of creation that in a beautiful literary style describes the origin of all things, the ordering of this world's many parts into a harmonious whole, and the climactic act of human creation in the divine image, close quote. So let's read it together. Listen now as I read God's word for us, beginning with the beginning. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. What I want to do is consider this passage this way. First, I want to consider and offer some overarching things, some overarching considerations that would pertain to the whole. Secondly, I want to look at the prologue, verses 1 and 2. And then lastly, I want to survey the seven days. And then I'm going to close us with a couple of meditations. So don't worry about all that. I'm going to try to be redundantly clear as we go as to where we are. So we're going to begin first by taking this passage on the whole with some overarching considerations. Number one, First overarching consideration is that God's words do what they say. God's words do what they say. God creates out of nothing by his word. He speaks things into being. The constant refrain of Genesis 1 is, and God said this, and then what? And it was so. All of this, friends, emphasizes God's sovereign and majestic power as creator. It is always this way. Throughout the entire biblical account, it is this way. From the very beginning to when Jesus shows up on the scene and speaks to wind and waves and a storm ceases. To when Jesus speaks to a dead man and he walks out of a tomb. So too, when God calls us to faith in his Son, his words bestow what they say. Second, overarching consideration. In creation, God is ordering and separating all things into their appropriate, divinely intended place. In creation, God is ordering and separating all things into their appropriate Divinely intended place. So there is a theme that runs throughout this creation account. It is a theme of order. God is taking things and putting them in order. Now this is very different than other ancient, like Near Eastern creation accounts. Some in the room may be familiar that many cultures in the ancient Near East had creation stories. The creation account in Genesis is written almost in such a way that it is a polemic against those narratives. Because there are things about Genesis that are unique, that are quite remarkable and noteworthy. This is one of them. In other ancient creation accounts, they were characterized by chaos and war amongst the gods. Not so in Genesis 1. This is an account of separation and order And God is the only one who existed before creation, so no one or no thing for that matter opposed Him when He created the world. It was not birthed out of conflict, but birthed out of something else. It was not birthed out of chaos, but order. Third, overarching consideration. Given that God created out of His own goodness, and given that it was so easy for Him, It is no wonder that the rest of the Scripture looks back on the work of creation and marvels. Consider the words of the psalmist. O Lord, how marvelous are Your works! In wisdom have You made them all. The earth is full of Your creatures. Or consider the words of the 24 elders around the throne of God at the end of it all. Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Fourth, overarching consideration. Let's think for a moment about the progression of the creation account. We should think of this in one sense like a series of concentric circles. We keep narrowing in on the thing that is most important. As we move through the days of creation, there is more and more of a focus on the earth. The focus goes from the heavens to this world. And as we make our way specifically to verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, there is a buildup to the creation of man and woman, which is the pinnacle of the whole thing. God makes Adam and Eve Effectively, the king and the queen over the creation. Adam and Eve are utterly unique in the scope of all of the things that God has made. They bear His image, and they are to rule in His stead. Like I said a moment ago, it's like a series of concentric circles. As we move further and further, there's more and more of a focus on what's most important and why creation was made in the first place. Now, in all of this that we're talking about right now, this too is very different from other ancient creation accounts. Like I've said, we have going, we're going in Genesis 1 from the heavens, from the celestial, right, to this world, to the terrestrial. And we see that the focus of God's creation and the focus of what He's doing is going to center on man. That is very different than any other creation account where these accounts center on the gods. They center on their fighting and warring with one another. And through all of that, the world is made. And the creation of men and women in those accounts is not a significant piece of the story. In some of those accounts, if humans are made with a purpose at all, that purpose is simply to serve the gods. And what did Paul say in Acts 17? That the God of the universe is not in need of anything. He's not in need of people to serve Him with hands. In some of these other creation accounts, humans were made to provide food for the gods because apparently they needed that. Not so with the Lord. He needs nothing. The focus in Genesis is very earthy. So for those of us who feel things deeply, and we look around at the world, and we see hard things, and our hearts are moved. When we see, and we look around at other human beings, and we know deep down that human beings possess dignity, the creation account in Genesis in so many ways, but even in this one, the fact that human beings are the focus of God's creation is what not only gives people inherent dignity, but it frankly makes sense of why we think the way we do and why we feel the way we do about ourselves and about other human beings. Regarding the creation of man, huge question. Why did God make us? Why? Some would posit that He created us because He needed something from us. Well, that doesn't fly biblically. Others might suggest that He created man because He wanted creatures to serve Him. doesn't fly biblically. Many through church history have understood this, and I think it is spot on. This has been a refrain of Christians for 2,000 years, that God created man so that He might have someone on whom to bestow His blessing. He created man because He's good, and He created us so that He might have someone on whom to bestow blessing his blessings. That fits with the scope of the Scriptures. Instead of seeing man as something God created for himself to do things for him, he created man that he might have someone to pour his grace out upon and to give his gifts to. That doesn't mean that we're great. It means that he is incredible. The glory of God Is the point of the universe, yes and amen? And how is it that God glorifies Himself most pointedly? It is through revealing His benevolence, His goodness, His grace, His mercy, and His gift giving nature. Fifth, overarching consideration creation teaches us that in all things God gives and we receive. God gives, we receive, is true. All the time. God needs nothing. We need everything. He gives out of the depth of His own infinite abundance, and we are desperate for His gifts. Always. So, now, friends, let's consider the prologue verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. The words of the Bible start with a refrain that is common and well-known to many. In the beginning, God. Just one or two brief observations here. At the beginning, God is there. So by the way, God is the only self-existent being in the universe. He is the only self-sustaining being in the universe. And he is the only self determining being in the universe. The only one who is completely unbound and free in that sense. Only of him can it be said, our God is in the heavens and he does everything he pleases. In Genesis 1.1, everything else is beginning, but God has been being. God never had a beginning he never got started he has always been now for a human being that'll break your brain if you you go back as far as you can go back and it's like well but he's still there how if your son or daughter asks you mom dad where did god come from the answer is well, God didn't come from anywhere. He's just there, friends. God is is perhaps the most staggering reality in the universe. In all of this, remember something. Genesis one one is the first scene of the movie. But it is not where the entire story got started. You've all seen good movies. I have too. Where you start and then somewhere like interspersed throughout, you have flashbacks to a time before scene one. The scriptures are like that. Genesis 1.1 is scene one. But throughout, in various places in the scriptures, we get flashbacks to eternity past, to when only God was. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, we learn, has always been purposeful. He has always had a plan. More specifically, He has always had a plan to save His people through His Son. And this is because God has always been good. And He has always been a Redeemer. Put your eyes back on verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the theme sentence of the whole creation account. As I said in the introduction, extraordinary providence is at work in creation. That's the undeniable testimony of this text and of the entire scripture. After creation, there will be such a thing as God's ordinary providence that will operate in the world in an ongoing way. But That is not what's happening here. We are not going to get mired in the weeds of, like, old earth, young earth. You know, well, what do we make of the seven days? Brother, if you want to ask me that question, you can talk to me at the door after. Suffice it to say, God is God, and he made the earth whole. Just like he made Adam a mature man, he made the earth mature. And we'll leave it at that for right now. Happy to take your questions at the door. That debate is not at all the point of this text. And we would do it a great disservice if we spend any more time on it. Put your eyes on verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So the universe, and particularly the earth here, is pictured as it appeared in the process of creation, which is about to be described in the coming verses. Now, before we even get to the seven days, I mentioned at the outset that we're going to consider Genesis as Christians. So we're going to do that right now. We should not read Genesis 1, and in particular, we shouldn't read Genesis 1 and verse 1 without thinking of some other passages in the Bible. For example, John's Gospel about God the Son. A number of these have been read already in the service in an unplanned way, and we'll trust the Lord in that. We're going to hear them again. What did John write about God the Son? In the beginning, literally the exact same construction. Genesis 1-1, John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, the Word, Christ, is the beginning of all things. He is the agent of creation. All things were made through Him. Colossians 1, For by Him, the Son, were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus, in Genesis 1.1. God the Son, more specifically. He hasn't taken on flesh at this point in time. Hebrews one. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, immediately after that. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Genesis 1-1. God the Son is there, and redemption is in view. Why do I say that? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says that effectively. The one through whom the world was made is the very one who would come and live in it, and suffer in it, and bleed in it, and die in it in order to save his people, and in order to restore all things. Friends, real talk. There are many things about this life and this universe that we don't understand. There are many things about this life that aren't ours to know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that have been revealed belong to us and our children forever. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And He has also put eternity into man's heart. But He has done it in such a way that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We don't have answers for all of the suffering that's a result of sin, specifically. We know that all suffering is a result of sin, but we do not have answers, specific ones, to hard and terrible things in life as to why they are exactly the way that they are. But truth in advertising, nobody does. Nobody does. But what we do have, and by we I mean the saints, we do have a Savior who suffered and bled and died to redeem us. And nobody else has a message remotely like that. A Savior who made the world, who came and lived and suffered and bled and died for it. Praise be to His name. So not only is God the Son present in verse 1, the Spirit shows up in verse 2. Put your eyes there. Very last sentence of verse 2. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So from Jump Street, from the first two verses of the scriptures, the Trinity is there. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. All right, let's consider the seven days. We're going to do this quickly. We're going to survey these before we have a couple of meditations to close. The days are very straightforward in terms of what happens. Day one, verses three to five, light and darkness. Light and darkness. God says, let there be light, and there is. One truth, you can write it down, book it. Apart from God, there is only darkness. He is the the true light of the world. The light in view in these verses is not light from the sun. You realize that because the sun hadn't been made yet. People wig out over that. There's no reason to. Why? That's a significant, redemptive, Christocentric thing. How so, brother? Because the creation and the existence of this light that exists apart from the sun preaches a sermon about Christ. John writes of him, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John writes of him, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John writes of him, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into darkness. The world. Light itself is a pointer to Jesus. Unless lest you think I am overstating it, in the new heavens and the new earth, at the end of everything, what is said of the light there? What is said of the light in the new heavens and the new earth? This, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on. It. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is who? The lamp. Christ is the light of the new heavens and the new earth. And so it was at the beginning. Day two, verses six to eight, God creates the heavens and the sky. Moving on to day three, verses nine to 13, God creates the seas, the earth, and the vegetation. So the seas, the waters are put in place, the dry land emerges. So we now have the earth, the sea, and the sky. All of the basic dwelling places of the universe are there. And then God begins to fill them. He starts with vegetation. And though God, this is important for us as we just try to think about reasoning things out and thinking about the world. Though God is the creator of vegetation, notice that He uses the earth as a secondary agent to have it sprout. So to say that God acts this is wholesale, right? To say that God acts does not mean that God every time is just literally pushing things around on a board, but that God is the sovereign creator who uses all kinds of agency to accomplish his will. He grants that vegetation, again through the agents of the earth, would have the ability to reproduce. Day four, verses 14 to 19, the sun, moon, and stars. A couple of observations here that again make the creation account of Genesis Unique when compared to other ancient creation accounts. One, God creates the heavenly lights. Versus in many other creation accounts, the sun is so associated with the creator God that the sun was just there. Second observation. In Genesis, and for God's people thereafter, the sun, the moon, and the stars are merely material entities. Whereas in so many other ancient religions, They were seen as gods, not so with the Lord. Day five, in verses 20 to 23, we see that sea creatures and birds are made. So God makes creatures that will dwell in the sea and in the air, on the land. These creatures are different than the plants because something is said of them that was not said of plants, that they have the breath of life in them and they are living creatures. Verse 20, they have the breath of life. God also grants them the ability to reproduce. Then we come to day 6, verses 24 to 31. It is clear in these verses, friends, that the animals and human beings are distinct. There are three classes of animals that are mentioned, livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. And humans are never mentioned as a part of any of them. Now, things to notice regarding the creation of humanity that have not already been stated. Aside from the fact which I think has already become clear that their creation, the creation of Adam and Eve, is the climactic act of the whole thing. Aside from that, other creatures you'll notice, sea creatures, birds, and animals were made according to their kinds. Whereas humans are made according to God's own image. And humans are created after his likeness. This meant, amongst other things, that humanity would have dominion over the rest of the creation. Now, we're going to be thinking a lot more about Adam and Eve next week, because that's what chapter 2 is about the unique place that they held in creation and the covenant that God made with them. So, that's next week. Lastly, day 7, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, we read that God rested from his work. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So this is the first time in the whole Bible that we read of God sanctifying anything. Just a quick note. This is kind of an aside, but worth saying. Only God can sanctify something. I trust that's clear. Why? Because he's the only intrinsically, essentially holy being in the universe. And if anything else is going to be holy, he must make it so. And if anything else is going to be holy, he does it by connecting it to himself. We're going to come back in just a moment and think about the significance of the seventh day. First meditation. So we're landing the plane and you might think I might buzz the tower a couple times. Just let you all know. All right. First meditation on creation and redemption, creation and redemption. We've been considering creation today. God created everything. But then if you've read ahead, you're like really diligent and you're like Bible reading plan and you already made it through Genesis 3, you know, you know that everything is about to be wrecked by sin. Humanity and the entire creation along with us is cursed. After the fall, it's quite literally, it's destruction and ruin and evil and wickedness every place. So God now Post fall is in the work of redemption. What he's doing. And you realize that redemption is effectively the work of recreation. That's his entire project from Genesis 3 and chapter 15 through the end of the Bible. It's about redemption, recreation, restoration. We have very clear things in the scriptures that make this obvious. And this is what we're doing right now, friends, is an exercise in trying to connect the whole Bible together and think about how we should read things, even in the book of Genesis. One of the things in the scriptures that make redemption very clear and the project of God to redeem very clear is the tabernacle that he is going to give his people Israel. The tabernacle, many may know, is sort of a mobile version of the temple. As the people of Israel are wandering around in the wilderness, God gives them this place where he will uniquely have his presence dwell with them where satisfaction for sins is made, where sins are atoned for, and where people who are unclean are made clean. Now, there is a striking connection between the creation account in Genesis and the words of God to Moses regarding the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus. Remarkable. Creation happens over seven days. And each of those days effectively begin with, and God said. With the tabernacle, God gives seven speeches to Moses over six chapters. Every one begins with, the Lord said to Moses. Here's how the tabernacle is going to be made. The seventh day of creation is the Sabbath. The seventh speech of God to Moses regarding the tabernacle is about the Sabbath. So we should see, what I'm suggesting is we should see a connection between creation and the construction of the tabernacle. Creation in which the Garden of Eden is made and God dwells there with his people. Tabernacle, given to God's people in grace that God will dwell there. Connect these things together. Now, I say all of that because it matters ultimately because of what would happen 1,500 years after Moses is dead. And an apostle would write these words. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He's talking about God the Son who came and lived here. And then that God-man, Jesus, would say, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he was talking about himself, his body. Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and of the temple. And so, God the Son, think with me for a moment. God the Son is the beginning of creation. He is the one through whom all things were made. And He took on human flesh and came and lived in this wasteland called fallen earth. And why did He do it? He came to make atonement for sin. He came to make satisfaction for sin. He did it to be the perfect sacrifice for our guilt. He did it to fulfill all righteousness for us. When he came and was God's presence on the earth, Emmanuel, God with us, he made the unclean clean. He made the unrighteous righteous. Jesus came to redeem us. And he did that by uniting us to himself. Through our union with Him by faith, He recreates us. This has been the project of God from the beginning. Think this way. Second meditation. On the seventh day. Let's think about the seventh day in particular, about rest. Regarding the Sabbath day that God has made holy, even here in Genesis 2, Jesus would come and say of it, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now in saying that, he made himself God, and many people hated him for it. But he also said of the Sabbath. You remember the context probably. Jesus was often around Jews in the temple on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees had a bunch of rules and regulations about the Sabbath in terms of what was permissible and not permissible to do. And they would often try to trap Jesus by, you know, like there would be a, A a very sick person or something like that around Christ. And Jesus would heal this person on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and others would be warped out of their frames because like, we can't do that on the Sabbath day. And Jesus would continually challenge them on their understanding of the Sabbath. But in that context, he makes this statement. God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, according to Jesus, the Sabbath is for man's benefit. It is God's gift to you. Now that's true in terms of the pattern of our living. Meaning the pattern of work and then rest from our work that is healthy for us. But that is not the point of the Sabbath in the scripture. The Sabbath being our benefit, for our benefit, excuse me, and the Sabbath being God's gift to us is most profoundly true when we understand that the Sabbath was always about Christ and that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Put your eyes on the first few verses of Genesis 2. Notice how it ends there even in Genesis 2-3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. You notice what's missing. Unlike all the other days, The seventh day lacks this refrain. And there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. Many in church history have seen this in relation to Jesus. The seventh day doesn't have language like that because it is awaiting its fulfillment. And that fulfillment would come in the person and work of Christ, the one who would save us from our sins through His work, not our works. Most pointedly, the fulfillment of the Sabbath would come 1,500 years after Moses wrote these words. And it would come on a seventh day of the week outside of Jerusalem. And it would come when Jesus laid in a tomb on that day of the week. His work finished. Righteousness Redemption accomplished. Satisfaction for sin made. And He laid there on Saturday, the seventh day. And then He would get up the next day to bring us into the new creation that God has prepared for those who love Him, who trust His Son. Like the Sabbath, Jesus is for us. He came for us. He is God's gift to us, and He is our Sabbath rest. In Him, we cease from our working. We cease to work to justify ourselves. We cease to work for salvation. On the cross, He said, it's finished. He meant what he said, and he laid down in the tomb only to take his life up again to save us. And he never fails in what he means to do. So, if you sit here today and you trust Christ, you are secure, and your redemption is accomplished. And you have rest. People sometimes misunderstand this. This principle. They think that what we're saying, when we say that we have rest in Christ, is, well, just throw your hands up and stop trying. That's dumb. We are not saying that. By all means, we try. We by all means, try to live intentional lives. We pursue obedience. We seek to love each other. We seek to run away from sin. Even though in our weakness, we find ourselves running to it. We try. You better believe we try. What we are saying, though, meaning that we have rest in Christ, is stop. Brother and sister, stop trying to save yourself. You can't. You never could. Only Christ can, and trust Him. Stop trying to do stuff in order to be righteous before God. Stop trying to do stuff in order to have peace with God. It will never come. Stop trying to do stuff in order to secure your status as God's adopted child. It's yours already. Trust Christ because He alone has secured all of these things for you. He is our whole and only righteousness by faith. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He intercedes for us. He advocates for us when we sin. And He offers rest to weary sinners who know they're not righteous. Who know that they can't save themselves. Hebrews 4 says this. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. As Jesus said, and we refer to so often, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find what? Rest for your souls. So when you read that account of the seventh day and God resting, you are right to see Jesus there as the ultimate fulfillment of that day that God made holy and set apart. Because Jesus is our rest now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us faith. Give us faith to trust your son. Sometimes, if we're honest, the hardest thing to do in this life is to just simply trust him. Because there's so many other things that we think about and worry about and so many other things that we pursue. And we are so, so inclined to always think that your feelings about us are tethered to how we're doing. Give us faith to trust your son. Give us mercy. Cleanse us from our sins and from all our unrighteousness. Father, we pray that you would give us grace and we pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek to live this life in this world that you have made. We pray for your help in all of it and we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.